from my youth up. I've not violated this commandment. I've kept this commandment always. Thou shalt not kill. However, dear ones, if we are to grow in our knowledge of Christ, if we are to grow in our communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, we must grow in our need for Jesus Christ. We must learn how much we daily need an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. For you see, dear ones, the deceitfulness of our own hearts, even as Christians, can lull us into an indifferent sleep and slumber with regard to the many ways we yet break the sixth commandment. Thus, as we consider together the meaning of the sixth commandment today, let us not turn the volume down nor be driven away from the Lord Jesus Christ. But rather, dear ones, let us be driven safely into the gracious and loving arms of our Savior in order that we may know how great our need of Jesus Christ is. Not just on the day that we were converted, but that we might know how great our need of Him is every single day. One of the purposes for which God has given us His holy commandments, His law, is to reveal to us our sin and our desperate need of a righteousness that is alien to our own. A perfect righteousness of which God will approve because God will not approve of our own righteousness. All our righteousness is as filthy rags before the living God. As we look steadfastly, therefore, at the law of God, we see the absolute perfect righteousness of God reflected therein. And we are granted eyes to see by the grace of God. We are granted eyes to see the filth of our own polluted righteousness with which we have clothed ourselves in contrast to the spotless robe of Christ's righteousness which the law of God requires. Dear ones, until we see and smell our own filth. We are like those who work in a manure farm. We are like those who have grown accustomed to the foul smell in their hair. To those who have grown accustomed to the foul smell upon their clothes and all around them. And though everybody else that they come in contact with, should they go into the city, would be terribly offended at the smell that is upon them because they have become accustomed to that smell. They look at others strangely. They look at others as if to say, what's wrong with you? Why are you offended? You see, they have grown indifferent to the smell of the filth. And likewise, dear ones, all of us had at one time grown so accustomed to our sin that we lived in it, we worked in it, and we played in it without realizing that it was of infinite offense to a holy God and deserved His eternal punishment. And until, dear ones, the Spirit of God clearly sets before us the spotless law of God, and until the Spirit of God grants us eyes to see our filth and a nose to smell our foul stench before a holy God, we will never turn from our sin and flee to Jesus Christ for His glorious righteousness. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul as he explains 
for us the purpose of God's law in Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? No, and no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now listen to Paul's conclusion. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But I must also say, before moving on to our text, that even as Christians, we become so comfortable with our lives that we too can become indifferent to the many ways in which we violate God's commandments, and in particular, the sixth commandment. Dear ones, do not this day be offended when the Spirit of God shines the light of this sixth commandment into your heart and into your life and says, that's an offense to me as a holy God. Don't be offended. Be humbled. Be driven to Christ. Rather, dear ones, be thankful that God loves you, His people, so much that He will not leave you to work and play and live in your sin. Because He has purpose to conform you to the image of His own dear Son. And this is part of the sanctification process. Revealing to us our sin, repenting of that sin, being delivered from that sin so that we might be conformed to His glorious image. My first main point today is to give you a summary of the sixth commandment. Listen to the following words as found in the larger catechism, question 136. What are the sins forbidden in the Sixth Commandment? The sins forbidden in the Sixth Commandment are all taking away the life of ourselves or of others, except in case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense. The neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life, sinful anger, Hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreations, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. For the remainder of this sermon, we will, by God's grace, draw out many 
of these matters that have been summarized for us in the larger catechism. My second main point then is what the sixth commandment does not forbid. What it does not forbid. Before we consider what the sixth commandment does teach, let us observe what it does not teach. First of all, there are three things that I want to cover very quickly as to what it does not forbid. The sixth commandment does not forbid lawful self-defense. The sixth commandment does forbid all unlawful and unjust killing. But it does not forbid all taking of human life. You see, since God is the creator and giver of life, only He can authorize what is lawful and what is unlawful killing. What does He say about self-defense? He says in Exodus 22:2, if a thief be found breaking up, that means breaking into someone's home, and be smitten that he die, there shall no blood be shed for him. That is, no one should be executed for having slain him, for it was done in self-defense. The very next verse, however, interestingly enough, it says that if a thief breaks in to your home during the day and you slay him, Obviously, in this case, he has no weapon in his hand. He's simply there to steal. He's not there to harm you. And if you slay him, in that case, God's word says, there is blood upon your hands. But at nighttime, since you cannot see what a thief is carrying in his hand, you're not responsible if one enters at night and breaks into your home. The Shorter Catechism teaches in question 68 what is required in the Sixth Commandment, and it answers it this way. The Sixth Commandment requireth all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. And this lawful defense will certainly seek listen carefully, will certainly seek to avoid all physical altercations as much as possible. Lawful self-defense is not the first resort if we have other resorts available to us. If we have other options, that is not the first thing we do is to take that most lethal weapon that we have and strike them down. If we can reason with an individual, so we should do. If we can flee, so we should do. Or if we can call for the assistance of others who can subdue the aggressor, so we should do. But when these attempts fail to restrain violence, or when someone has actually, as we see in Exodus 22, broken into our home, and especially at night. You must assume at that point that his intentions are not for your good. That he intends to do harm. And that you have, in the word of God, not only an option if he intends to do you harm, you have a requirement given to you to defend yourself and your family. You see, the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 does not forbid lawful self-defense when he speaks of turning the other cheek. Rather, what he forbids is a personal vindictiveness and retaliation where we believe it to be lawful to repay personally an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth or a blow for a blow. And we simply have this personal revenge in our heart. You've done this to me, I'm going to get even with you. There's not an issue of self-defense, but retaliation. Jesus forbids that response on the part of a Christian and on the part of any human being. 
The standard of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and a life for a life is not one we are to meet out personally. It is not a personal ethic, but one which is to be meted out by the civil magistrate. It is the civil magistrate who is to take care to meet out an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Not you, nor myself. Secondly, the second or the sixth commandment does not forbid a just war. A just war is simply a national act of self-defense against an aggressor. Since nations within the, the New Covenant era are not like Israel of old, given positive commandments by God to destroy various nations by aggressive military force, war therefore should only be used as a last resort again in self-defense. This also implies that when a hostile government exercises such tyranny that it seeks to destroy and murder its own people, that it is not a violation of the sixth commandment for that people to take up arms against such a beast in self-defense. Paul in Romans 13 forbids the resisting of a lawful civil magistrate who is the ordinance of God, but he does not forbid the resisting of a tyrant who destroys his own people. Certainly our covenanted forefathers in Scotland and in Ireland and in England even carried their weapons to worship services so as to defend themselves against the murderous assaults of the dragoons. And thirdly, the sixth commandment does not forbid capital punishment, but rather when properly interpreted actually requires capital punishment. How often have we heard opponents to capital punishment cite, thou shalt not kill, as some alleged authorization to forbid the execution of condemned murderers. Capital punishment, dear ones, is not barbaric or uncivilized. It is a lawful self-defense, just like just war is. For even as a violent, aggressive nation that attacks another nation must be resisted, even to the point of death, so likewise must a violent, aggressive person preying upon helpless individuals in society be resisted even to death. And for that reason, I say that the sixth commandment, therefore, in order to protect people within a nation, the sixth commandment in lawful self-defense requires capital punishment. It doesn't simply permit it. It doesn't simply allow it. It requires it. Paul declares concerning the lawful civil magistrate in Romans 13.4, For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword... In vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Likewise, dear ones, the Lord has defined for the civil magistrate in his law those crimes that are worthy of death. But we have moved so far from God's word that even the most obvious crime, namely murder, is not punished with death today. Exodus 21.14 says, But if a man come presumptuously upon his neighbor to slay him with guile, thou shalt take him from mine altar that he may die even if he comes into the tabernacle of God and seeks God's forgiveness at his altar, that 
does not relieve him from the punishment which God requires. Many people have become Christians awaiting a sentence in death row. And I praise God for that. They have been forgiven of their sin by God and perhaps by even those victims whom they murdered or the family of the victims. But nevertheless, God says, take him from mine altar that he may die. Today, quite to the contrary, nations not only do not execute those who are deserving of death, but they even murder unborn babies. They murder unborn babies and they imprison convicted murderers and even pay and these murderers stay in prison is even paid for by the families of the victims. What a travesty of justice. What a travesty of the law of God. How the blood of these babies cries out for justice. And justice, dear ones, from God will certainly come. May it not long be delayed. The third main point is that I would give you some significant distinctions in regard to murder. Three distinctions I would give you. First of all, God does distinguish between murder and an accidental homicide where no sinful neglect was involved. Whereas murder is to be punished with death, as we find in Exodus 21, verses 12 and 14, if one is ignorant of a loose axe head and it flies off while he is chopping wood and kills his neighbor, he is not guilty of murder, according to Deuteronomy 19, verses 4 and 5. He was ignorant. Not willfully ignorant, he was ignorant. If I borrow someone's car, to make it a little more applicable to today, if I borrow someone's car and I do not know that there are no brakes on that car, and I kill a passenger in my car, I am not responsible. I am not willfully ignorant. Really, the responsibility lies upon the person who knew there were no brakes in that car. A second distinction. Furthermore, God also distinguishes between the accidental homicide where no sinful neglect was involved, as in the axe head situation, and an intentional homicide, or I'm sorry, an unintentional homicide where sinful neglect is involved. In Exodus 21, verses 28 and 29, we find the illustration of an owner of an ox. And this ox is known by the owner to gore people. Up to this point, no one has died, but they've apparently been injured. He knows that this is a problem, but he does not corral the ox. He does not fence, fence the ox but allows it to run freely. And the ox kills a person. The Word of God says that it is not only the ox that should be put to death, but the owner of that ox as well. He is responsible for the death of that person. And I would say again, by way of Contemporary application, the person who drinks and is intoxicated, is drunk and kills a family, kills an individual, is likewise guilty of murder due to sinful neglect. The third distinction that I would make is this. God distinguishes between an accidental homicide wherein there is no sinful neglect and suicide or mercy killing. 
so-called mercy killing. In 1 Samuel 31 and in 2 Samuel 1, we find the account of Saul's death. We find he is fleeing from the Philistines or in battle with the Philistines and is struck by an arrow. This arrow brings Saul down to such an extent that he sees he's going to die. He does not want to come into the hands of the Philistines. And so he tells or he commands his, his armor bearer to slay him. The armor bearer will not do it. Along comes an Amalekite. And apparently Paul or Saul pleads with this Amalekite to slay him. And he does so. The Amalekite takes the crown to David, thinking that he's done something worthy of honor. And David obtains the details as to what occurred. And David has this man slain for mercy killing, for taking the life of Saul. Because it is not within our power to take or give life. That is God's prerogative alone. And likewise, dear ones, suicide. Suicide is self-murder. We have no more right to murder ourselves than we have to murder another. Life and death are in the hands of the Lord and he condemns all suicide, as in the case of Judas, who went out and hung himself. And let me say in this regard, before we move on, abortion is not an act of mercy shown to either child or mother. It is murder. Even in Exodus 22, where two men are fighting, and they don't notice that there is a woman with child standing nearby. And they, in the course of their fighting, due to their sinful neglect, they, they in some way cause this child to come out prematurely. They, they run into or strike the mother and the child comes out prematurely. Even in that case, they are to make some type of restitution to the, to the uh, family, even if the child is not killed. But it goes on to say, and if the life of the child is taken, life shall be given for life. And that's in a sinful, neglectful situation. How much more so when there is an intentional act to take the life of unborn children? The circumstances surrounding the conception, for example, if it was due to rape, or the health of an unborn child, whether certain deformities or diseases, in no way alter the fact that the, that child's life has been given by God and only He can take it. However, let me simply say this, because it is possible that we may have and could have those who have been guilty of this sin who come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Who seek His mercy and His grace. That this is not the unpardonable sin. David was forgiven by God when he came to the Lord and sought His forgiveness. And Paul declared himself to be the chief of sinners, for he consented to the actual execution and murder of Christians. The Apostle Paul declares in Romans 5.20, But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Let us 
Therefore, welcome any who have committed this sin. Let us embrace them with the love of Christ. The fourth main point. And that is what the sixth commandment does teach. What does it teach? Well, first of all, the sixth commandment requires us to care for and protect the body and soul of ourself as well as the body and soul of others. We must not have a pharisaical outlook on this commandment in thinking that it speaks only to our external actions and deeds. This commandment, like all of God's commandments, addresses our thoughts and our words and our deeds. You see, dear ones, this commandment really summarizes our whole duty to our fellow man. This commandment is simply saying the same thing as love thy neighbor as thyself. Or therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. In other words, God requires in this commandment that we seek what is good, lawful, and profitable for ourselves as well as for our neighbor. In a sense, we might say that this sixth commandment forbids the breaking of all the other nine commandments because to transgress in any of the other nine commandments is self-destructive and destructive to others as well. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Any sin is death. And therefore, when we fall into sin, it is self-destructive. We violate this commandment because we should be preserving our life, not destroying our life. Also, under this heading of what the Sixth Commandment teaches, the Lord declares that we violate this commandment in our thoughts and attitudes and desires. How is that done? Let me give you three ways in which that is done. By envy and jealousy. By coveting what belongs to another is an attitude that can lead to murder. It can lead to hatred. It can lead to despising our brother or sister. This inward sin, you see, led Cain to hate his brother and then to murder his brother. The sin of envy and jealousy. Ahab envied the vineyard of Naboth and allowed his wicked wife Jezebel to murder Naboth in order to obtain it. Dear ones, I ask you, do you covet the gifts and possessions and abilities of others? Has such envy actually led you to despise your brother or your sister? God calls us, dear ones, not to envy, not to discontentment, but rather He calls us to be content and to learn contentment in all things. In Philippians 4.11. To learn to be content when we are abased, when we have nothing. And to learn contentment when we have our needs supplied and even when we have the comforts of this life in full measure. To learn contentment in all things. And the secret is to find your contentment in Jesus Christ. For to me to live is Christ. The Apostle Paul said, if he is your life, then everything else in life can be taken away from you and you will be content. This commandment, the sixth commandment, also teaches us 
that we violated in our thoughts and attitudes and desires when we have an evil attitude of anger and personal revenge that longs to get even with another. Seeking vengeance, dear ones, is a violation of the Sixth Commandment as we've already noted. But listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, verses 17 and following. Recompense no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. And then the conclusion, Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. The Lord Jesus Christ commands us to pray for those who persecute us. And if there is any vengeance that is to be meted out upon the heads of our enemies, let it be God's vengeance and not our own. That does not mean that we cannot defend ourselves as we've already indicated. But if there is vengeance that is to be poured out, let God be the one who meets it out, not us personally taking our own vengeance. Although we are to have a righteous indignation concerning our own sin and concerning the sin of others, nevertheless, let us be sure that it is God's honor and not our own that we earnestly seek. David gives us, I believe, the example that we should follow when he says in Psalm 35, verses 11 through 16, false witnesses did rise up. They laid to my charge things that I knew not. They rewarded me evil for good to the spoiling of my soul. What was David's response? How did David treat them? But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer returned into mine own bosom. I behaved myself as though he had been my friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one that mourneth for his mother. But in mine adversity they rejoiced and gathered themselves together. Yea, the abjects gathered themselves together against me, and I knew it not. They did tear me and ceased not. With hypocritical mockers and feasts, they gnashed upon me with their teeth. Dear ones, do we weep and mourn at those who falsely accuse us? Do we weep over their sin and their rebellion and their opposition to the truth? Or do we rather vindictively call down fire from heaven like James and John, the sons of thunder? God will avenge His own. God will defend the cause and the truth of Jesus Christ. And He will use us to do so. But beloved, let us not have a vindictive spirit, a revengeful spirit, and rather not gnash, at our, uh, gnash our teeth at those who oppose us. Such an attitude, dear ones, is completely contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is indeed murderous and thus satanic. And the third way in which we see we can break the sixth commandment in our thoughts, 
and our attitudes and desires is that an attitude of unforgiveness and resentment harbored in one's heart also violates the sixth commandment. I would ask you, dear ones, do you have a perfect memory when it comes to all the ways you have been wronged by others, but a very forgetful and selective memory when it comes to all the ways you have been helped, cared for, and encouraged by others? Love, according to 1 Corinthians 13, keeps no record of wrongs and offenses. The Lord, in Proverbs 19.11, extols the man who glories not in remembering every offense committed against him, but rather whose glory it is to overlook an offense. We should be those who have, dear ones, a very thick skin, but very tender hearts. And yes, there comes a time when we can no longer cover a brother or sister's offense and sin. We must, in those cases, in love, go to them, always looking to our own sins and weaknesses, standing ready to forgive them, praying for their repentance and humbly showing to them their sin and taking with us the attitude of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6.1 where he says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted." You see, dear ones, we don't go to others in order to beat them up. We don't go to others in order to make ourselves look good. We go to restore. That word restore means to set. And it's the same term that is used to set a broken bone. We go as spiritual physicians to set Straight, a brother who has fallen by the wayside to bring him back, to love him, to speak the truth in love. We go having first taken the beam out of our own eye in order that we may see the mote in our brother's eye. That's our attitude. But perhaps you have wondered what guidelines you should use in order to know when it is appropriate to go to a brother or sister and when is it inappropriate to do so. Well, I suggest you ask the the uh, five following questions of yourself. First of all, is the offense a stumbling block to others? That is, is the offense of such a public nature that it will lead others to follow in the same sin? Secondly, is the offense an isolated event or is it happening with more regularity? Thirdly, is the offense a significant violation of God's commandments or is it one that all Christians could be regularly charged with committing due to the weakness of the flesh? You see, if we bring every violation to the attention of another, that is all we'd ever be doing. Think about in the home. If a husband was continually bringing to his attention all of his wife's violations of God's commandments, or vice versa, that's all you would be doing all day long. And furthermore... What would a passage like this possibly mean if we brought every single violation of God's commandment to the attention of the, of the violator? What would a verse like this mean in 1 Peter 4.8? That love shall cover a multitude of sins. The fourth question to ask. Is the offense obstinately and stubbornly persisted in, or is it acknowledged to be a weakness from which one earnestly desires to be delivered? 
Is there, is there a persistence, a digging in of the heels with regard to the sin? Or is there an acknowledgement that what has been committed is something a person wants to overcome by God's grace? And lastly, is the offense one which has simply caused you to be ticked off and angry at the offender? Or has it caused you to earnestly weep and pray for the offender? To sincerely sorrow over that offense as well offenses before God. Do we have the attitude of the Apostle Paul exhibited in Romans chapter 9 verses 1 through 3 with those who opposed him? He said, I could wish that I were accursed for my brethren according to the flesh. My heart is in much sorrow over my brethren according to the flesh, the very ones who stoned him, the very ones who haunted him and pursued him from one city to the next. And here is the attitude of this great apostle of Jesus Christ. He could wish that he were accursed for the sake of his brethren according to the flesh. Is that our attitude? that we have when we go to another. Dear ones, remember that God declares in James 2.13, for he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. The Lord declares we just that we are to gladly forgive a brother who sins against us even seven times in a day and repents. It should be our joy to forgive. We should be like that father welcoming home the prodigal son, throwing our arms around that person if they repent seven times for sinning against us. And I would ask you, before I move on to the next point, are we as critical of our own sins as we are of the sins of others? Jesus said, dear ones, by what judgment you judge, you will be judged. The second way in which we violate this commandment is not only by our desires or attitudes, but also by our words. And in regard to this, I would, I would ask you, how many times in the course of a day do we wield the sword of our tongue to pierce our children, to pierce a husband, or to pierce a wife? We even at times, if we admit it to ourselves, we even at times look for just the right buttons to push so we can really let so-and-so have it with a verbal barrage of accusations, piercing comments. We can kill with our tongue. We can assassinate the character of another with our tongue it should be obvious that this commandment requires us, dear ones, to protect and defend by our words the good reputation of ourselves and of others. And when we bend the truth, when we misrepresent the position of others, when we slander the good reputation of others, we have used our tongue in regard to verbal murder, we have assassinated their reputation and character. Dear ones, rather this commandment requires us to always, always speak the truth in love. This commandment also requires us not to be silent in the cause of Jesus Christ. Not to be a so-called silent witness alone, but to be a very verbal witness concerning the truth, concerning the testimony of Christ. 
This commandment calls us to defend Christ's honor and his cause and to defend all of the faithful contendings of the martyrs and the witnesses of Jesus Christ because their reputations are on the line as well. Never forget the very sobering words of our Lord in Matthew 12, verses 36 through 37. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Let us be ever so careful to use our speech for the benefit, the good, and the profit of others. Others may not like what we have to say, even when we're speaking what's right, what's true, what's profitable for them. They may find it offensive, but if we do not offend in the way we present it, but it is the truth that offends, then we leave that with God. And finally, as we close today, we must note that there are also certain actions by which we transgress the sixth commandment. We've talked about murder. We've talked about the obvious ones. Let me give to you perhaps some less conspicuous actions by which we transgress the sixth commandment. First of all, neglecting those who are in need, not showing mercy, not giving of what God has blessed you with to meet the needs of others. When you have and you withhold, it is a form of killing that brother or that sister by your actions. Rather, we should give heed to the words of the Apostle John in 1 John 3.17. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? How can you say that you are defending, protecting, and caring for the life of another when you have and know someone is in need and you let them go hungry and without? When you know that there, there is a need in any way that you can help to meet, how dwells the love of God within you or within me in such a situation? Another way in which, by our actions, that we can violate this commandment, and I apply this to the family, neglecting the spiritual welfare of our children, not considering seriously that these are eternal souls, not praying daily for their eternal salvation, neglecting family worship on a daily basis, not giving them a Christian education, sending them off to the pagans to educate, by not requiring them to have their own secret worship. That's an obligation, dear ones. Are you training your children from a very young age, to have their own secret worship? Are you holding them accountable to that obligation? You're not caring for their spiritual welfare if you do not fulfill that commandment. You do not show care for the eternal souls of your children, dear ones, when you permit them to show you disrespect. When they can treat Adults, when they can treat those in positions of lawful authority with disrespect, you're not teaching and training your children what this commandment teaches. You're not caring for their souls. When you allow your children to lie to you and to get away with it, when you allow your children to watch and to read whatever they desire, When you 
allow your children to throw temper tantrums or to hit other children. You do not care for your children's souls. Regardless of what you may say, your actions, dear ones, indicate something altogether different. And if what I have said is not true, don't listen to me, but if what I say is true, and I believe this is what God's word teaches, then you must show your love for your children by your actions. Remember the judgment that fell on not only Eli's sons, but upon Eli himself when he did not restrain his children from doing that which was evil. And God said, you have honored your children more than you have honored me. And finally, the last way in which the last application, the way in which we, by our actions, break the sixth commandment, I would relate this to the church of Jesus Christ. And particularly to ministers. Ministers neglect the spiritual welfare of their flock by tolerating heresy, by tolerating evil to be promoted within Christ's church, by tolerating false worship, which Christ has not authorized in the New Covenant, by allowing the ignorant and the scandalous to come to the Lord's table. We don't care for people's souls by permitting them to come. Quite to the contrary, if people are ignorant and scandalous, the Lord says they eat and drink judgment unto themselves, damnation unto themselves. How can we say we care for someone's soul when we allow them to eat damnation unto themselves? The Lord calls ministers watchmen. He calls Ezekiel the prophet in Ezekiel 3, a watchman upon the walls of Zion. And it is his duty to sound the trumpet when danger approaches. And God says, when you do not sound that trumpet, and danger approaches and, and, and the lives of people are taken spiritually, you have not sounded the alarm as to the danger, the wolves, the vile beasts that are out there that try to consume the flock, you do not sound the alarm, their blood will be upon your head, Ezekiel. I don't know of a more solemn and sobering exhortation to ministers, to elders, who have been given responsibility for caring and shepherding the flock of Jesus Christ if we sincerely, dear ones, care for the eternal souls of people, we must be in much prayer that God would raise up a faithful ministry. That he would give the financial resources to support such a ministry. And in keeping with this commandment, God commands that those who preach the word and teach the word by the word are to be supported. To this end, I exhort, I encourage, I challenge you, God's people, to consider what you are financially giving to the support of the ministry. That we might be able to see a faithful ministry going forth. You see, we can pray all we want to. Lord, raise up laborers in the harvest. Send out laborers, Lord, into the harvest field. Jesus told us to pray that way. But if we are not doing what we know to do with the resources that God has given to us in this small part of the world to financially support men like Greg Barrow, 
who is going to be trained, who is in the process of being trained to be a gospel minister. We are shirking our responsibilities and we are violating this commandment because it is by the ministry, the gospel ministry, that God has chosen to bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ by faithful preaching. Do you desire faithful preachers? You show it by your level of commitment financially. You see, the sixth commandment, dear ones, is really the great commission of the Old Testament. That's really what it is because it tells us we are to not only preserve and to save the physical lives of all, but also the spiritual lives of all that we can. We're to be concerned for body and soul. Jesus Christ in John 6 is said to be, in fact, the bread of life. He has given his life for his people. He is the bread that we feed upon and live forevermore. And so the Great Commission, dear ones, is the fulfilling of this commandment. Go ye into all the world, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. That is the fulfillment of this commandment, the sixth commandment as well, the Great Commission. What part do you have in that Great Commission? Even now. The Lord says, as we began our service, so I will end our service with this invitation to all who hear the gospel of Christ to come and to feed upon Him, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That is the fulfillment of the sixth commandment. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Choose ye this day whom you will serve. God sets before you life and death. Choose life. Feed upon Christ. Inherit eternal life. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we have been drawn by Thy Spirit into Thy presence this day to feed upon our Savior, to feed upon Thy Word. And it is life unto us. It is not death. And Thy commandment which we have feasted upon today has shown us, Lord, where we fail Thee, where we violate Thy commandments, where we sin against Thee. And I pray, O Father, that Thou would cause each one to flee to Christ even now, to seek forgiveness, to commune in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, to enjoy Thee and Thy many blessings. O oh, Father, we do thank Thee this day for eternal life through Christ. We do ask, Father, that Thou would encourage Thy people, that Thou would uplift them this day, that they would leave knowing and being assured of Thy love for them. And Lord, we do commit to, to Thee each of Thy sheep. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need.
SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.